Turkey is hurtling towards one of its most consequential elections. On May 14th, voters will head to the polls and choose between the incumbent, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, or the main opposition candidate, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu. Unlike previous electoral battles, Erdogan is facing an uphill struggle, with the country's economy failing to grow, and the aftermath of February's devastating earthquake still occupying the minds of many. His opponent, Kılıçdaroğlu, has secured a small but crucial lead in the polls. The two men have spent recent weeks travelling around the country, shaking hands, holding rallies and giving interviews. At one interview on April 16th, Kilach Dorolo raised more than a few eyebrows when he took aim at Turkey's drone industry and called for greater state control. If you only give it to the private sector, let's say, let our friend build an unmanned aircraft. If you only give it to the private sector like this, this is a big risk for Turkey. His comments caused such consternation that he was forced to swiftly backtrack just a few days later. Kilach Dorolo's campaign misstep highlighted the important place that Turkey's arms industry, and in particular domestic drone production, holds in Turkey. This week we ask, what makes Turkey's drones so special? How do they fit into Turkey's wider arms industry? And will they retain their special status if the man at the top changes. I'm Hugo Goodridge, and you're listening to The New Arab Voice. Before we take off with Turkey's drones, let's get up to speed with Turkey's election. There are two votes taking place, presidential and parliamentary both on May 14th. If no single presidential candidate can secure 50% of the vote, then the election will go into a runoff two weeks later. There are two main candidates. The incumbent is Recep Tayyip Erdogan of the Justice and Development Party, or AKP, who has been president of Turkey since 2014 and before that held the office of prime minister. During his time in office, Turkey has experienced significant changes with many accusing Erdogan of shifting to an authoritarian system. Crackdowns against opposition politicians, media figures, members of the military and activists have all been experienced during Erdogan's tenure. Under Erdogan, the economy experienced periods of solid growth, but in more recent times has crumbled, with the Turkish lira experiencing a severe devaluation amid spiralling inflation. On the campaign trail, Erdogan has followed his previous script, presenting himself as the strongman, the only answer to any problem that Turkey is having or will have in the future, with an additional generous serving of fear-mongering. We are here to open the door of Turkey's century, together with our nation against coup plotters, toothless defenders, global imperialists, political and social engineering projects. In spite of the authoritarian bent of his government, Erdogan still retains a strong following across the country. Of course I have decided. I will vote for the AKP. I will vote for Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Now, if we come to the reasons, 
We know how much value and importance he gives to young people. I know this as someone from within the party. In the programmes here, for example, we take care of our voters who will vote for the first time on their birthdays, neighbourhood by neighbourhood, name by name, and celebrate their birthdays. Erdogan's main opponent is Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, the leader of the main opposition party, the Republican People's Party, or CHP, since 2010. Kılıçdaroğlu has been a long-lasting figure of political opposition in Turkey. Kılıçdaroğlu was chosen as the opposition candidate of choice by an alliance of six opposition parties. On the campaign trail, Kılıçdaroğlu has promised a return to democracy. I know all of Turkey's problems. We know them all and we will solve them all. We have the knowledge, we have the experience and we have the strength. That strength is you, no one else. The power is the people, it is you. One of the main pillars of the opposition's campaign has been the removal of Erdogan, which for them goes hand in hand with the restoration of democracy. A message that has resonated with many voters. We have to change the old system and bring democracy, justice and law. We want to be able to express our ideas freely. We want the economy to recover. We want a life without hunger, without poverty, a life where children do not go to bed hungry. Also running for president is Muharrem Ince and Sinan Oam, although neither of these candidates has any real chance of winning. But with the most recent polling giving Kilach Darolo the lead by the narrowest of margins, there is a chance that the other two candidates might split the opposition vote and force a runoff. However consequential the upcoming vote is, for the most part, the campaigns have progressed pretty much as normal. The candidates have managed to convince their supporters who are already going to vote for them and harden the resolve of those who had no intention of voting for them. There was some minor drama when Erdogan left an interview on April 26th, sparking rumours on Twitter that he had suffered a heart attack, but returned to the campaign trail a few days later, reporting that he was suffering from a stomach bug. One other point of note was the comments by Kilic Darolo about the Turkish drones and where our episode started. Kilic Darolo was speaking at a campaign event on April 16th when he suggested that the production of military drones by a private company was a risk to Turkey. He said, They might send it to the Americans tomorrow or give it to the Qataris as we have given the tank pallet factory to the Qataris. Impossible. In all democracies and authoritarian regimes of the world, the defense industry must work together with the state. Although he didn't mention the company by name, Kilach Darolo was referring to Baikar. This prompted Baikal's general manager, Haluk Bayrekta, to tell CNN Turk it's very unfortunate to accuse the company of such a thing when it's not in question. Adding, no company in the defence industry in Turkey was on its own. You cannot produce without declaring it to the state. We export to 29 different countries by obtaining permission from the state authorities. Seemingly realising that he had made an electoral snafu, Galach Dorolo backtracked selling a rally in the city of Ushak. Was the indigenous defence sector kick-started with this government? The defence industry is a national issue, not a party issue. The stronger Turkey is in the defence industry, the more it sits at the table, the more it becomes a state that demonstrates its strength. He's not wrong. 
the drones have projected a strength. In fact, it's just one particular brand of drone, the Bayraktar TB2. It's been bought and used by Libya, Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, Morocco, Ethiopia, Pakistan, Tunisia, Poland and the UAE, to name just a few. Just this April, Romania was approved to purchase 18 of the TB2s. So why are they so popular? I would say the reason why the Bayraktars are so popular is because, number one, the producer of the company, Bicar, has done a good job in terms of advertising and public diplomacy of flaunting the successes of Bayraktars. This is Sona Kagapchai, senior fellow and the director of the Turkish Research Programme at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. But secondly, I think, to me, Bayraktar as a weapon symbolizes what Turkey is. A middle power that gets the job done. And I think that's what Bayraktar is, you know. The Bayraktar TB2 has proven itself to be a real workhorse of the modern military. And a cost-effective one as well. A Bayraktar TB2 will set you back around $5 million. While certainly a lot of money, it is considerably cheaper than its US or Chinese counterparts. The US Reaper drone sells for around $32 million. In fact, it has been said that one TB2 drone will cost you the same as it would to restock a US Reaper drone with munitions. It doesn't fly hundreds or thousands of miles away. Its range is limited, 100 to 200 miles. But it's perfect for mid-sized powers who don't need to cross oceans, who kind of want to create a safety, stability, influence zone around their territory. And they also don't want to break the bank in the meantime. And on top of it, Bayraktar is quite effective. It's been proven to take down Chinese-made drones in Libya, Russian-made drones, uh, and aircraft in Syria and South Caucasus. Not only is it cost-effective and it gets the job done for middle powers, but it's also very good. The TB2 proved vital for Ukraine at the start of the Russian invasion of 2022, helping the defending nation to stop Russian armoured vehicles in their tracks for which the Ukrainians were understandably very grateful. To show their gratitude, Ukrainian soldiers produced a song. In a fairly slickly produced video, which includes footage from drones of Russian armoured vehicles exploding, the soldiers sing lyrics including Their arguments are all kinds of weapons, powerful rockets, machines of iron. We have a comment for all the arguments. Bayraktar, Bayraktar. On the battlefield, the TB2 has proven itself to be more than capable but its effectiveness has also been proven as a powerful diplomatic tool. Sonna again. So, you know, unlike other countries that sell uh, military hardware, Bayraktars don't come with an end-user agreement. So Turkey doesn't tell the purchasing countries, hey, you can use it here, you can't use it there. So I think countries feel a little bit more free to purchase Bayraktars. But also I've observed that Turkey does not provide these drones to just any country that asks for it. Turkey provides it to allies or would-be allies. This is a very tantalising offer for a number of nations. Turkey has sold this weapon to Pakistan, Azerbaijan, traditional allies, Turkmenistan and Kyrgyzstan. 
but also to areas where it's building inflows, Africa, from Tunisia to Libya, Morocco, Ethiopia, as well as to Gulf countries, Qatar. So I think Ankara decision makers, although Bayraktar is manufactured by a private company, there's a very close linkage to its decision-making process and how elites in Ankara think about foreign policy in the sense that I think the uh, company reaches out or responds to or responds positively to requests if these requests come from allies or countries that Turkey wants to cultivate as allies. So you could say that although this is a weapon, it's actually an instrument of Turkey's soft power building exercise in its region and globally. A good example of this came with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, when citizens in Poland and Lithuania successfully crowdfunded the funds needed to purchase Bayraktar drones for the defending nation. But rather than take their money, which Turkey does need, they instead offered to donate the drones. So clearly, this is not just a financial undertaking. Yeah, they do want to make money, because after all, this is a privately owned company. But they ultimately are trying to create a brand for Turkey as a, you know, a to be respected and significant military player on the global stage. And I think what Bayraktar has done for Turkey is that you could argue that Turkish president, now previously Prime Minister Erdogan, has made many foreign policy forays to build influence for Turkey globally. You could also argue that politically, these efforts have not really produced much. You know, Erdogan pivoted Turkey's face to the Middle East. The idea was that Turkey was going to become a star power nation in the region. That didn't happen. Turkey became more isolated in the Middle East than before. So I would say the drones are building influence for Turkey. They're building a a cachet for Ankara. But they're also helping Turkey make up for missing political power by introducing sheer hard power into uh, conflicts areas, including North Africa, Middle East and South Caucasus. The Bayraktar TB2 drones are an effective tool on the battlefield and have also proven to be an effective diplomatic tool for the Turkish state. There is an additional reason as to why Baykar, the manufacturer, is popular with the current government. It's the company's chief technology officer and chairman of the board, Selçuk Bayraktar. A talented engineer, he is cited as the architect of the TB2. He also happens to be married to President Erdogan's daughter, Sumeya Erdogan. I would say Selçuk Bayraktar and Sumeya constitute Turkey's power couple now. They're young. They have a really uh, strong and interesting social media presence. Most recently, they went to Azerbaijan as a couple. They flaunted the success of Bayraktar's, which had helped Azeris win that war in 2020 against Armenia. They took pictures, selfies on uh, cockpits of fighter planes. And uh, I, I, I could observe that these, these pictures and images were not unpopular, so I would say they are a power couple. Erdogan is now 69 and has hinted in the past that this would be his last campaign for president of Turkey, which, if turned out to be true, would put Erdogan in the hunt for a successor. And it has been speculated that he would seek to keep it in the family. If Erdogan was thinking of cultivating anyone to succeed him, in his family and close circles. I would say Selçuk Bayraktar comes pretty close to it. Not surprisingly, therefore, although he is the CTO of a privately owned company, Selçuk Bayraktar recently engaged in a, you know, quite a polemical back and forth with the opposition candidate for president, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, 
Bayraktar attacked Kalishtarola, criticized him, suggested that if Kalishtarola came to power, the latter would eliminate Turkey's weapons industry and drones industry. Kalishtarola said nothing to that effect, but I think it just shows you that Selçuk Bayraktar at least personally believes that his career and his company's stakes are closely linked to the career of Turkish President Erdogan. But when Erdogan does either step down from his high office or is pushed out, he will leave vast shoes to fill. President Erdogan is a Janice-based figure, right? He delivered growth, built a base uh, constituted by people he has lifted out of poverty, a base that loves him. He's also another side, he's got another side, Erdogan that is, he's a demonizer, a brutalizer of demographics unlikely to vote for him. I would say together with Hungarian Prime Minister Orban, Erdogan is among the inventors of nativist populist politics in the 21st century, a model that has been copied by effective leaders elsewhere, not as efficiently because while these leaders who have copied Erdogan's model from Netanyahu to Trump to Bolsonaro have been voted out, Erdogan has not been voted out. He's not, he's not only a very good practitioner of this kind of politics, but he's also a kind of an invincible political dreadnought. And so that's why these elections on May 14th are important. If Erdogan is defeated, it will be the first time, not only politically, but globally, uh, signifying the, the book end of this kind of brand of politics. I don't think there's anyone who's going to replace Erdogan in the sense that he's going to be loved and feared at the same time. I think neither Selçuk Bayraktar nor any of other potential successors to Erdogan will be able to fill in Erdogan's shoes. They'll be loved or hated and respected, but they won't be loved and respected and hated all at simultaneously. That's what makes Erdogan a unique leader in the context of Turkish politics. With his high-profile background in creating a successful military drone, there will likely be a space for Selçuk Bayraktar in politics if he wanted it. But the leap to Turkey's next strongman could be too far for the son-in-law. For the first time since coming to power, Erdogan is facing a serious challenge. Come May 14th, he may lose. And if Kilac Darolo does enter office, he and his government will have to adopt their own policy when it comes to Turkey's growing military industrial power. According to Sona, if they listen to their voters, then the policy will likely continue. But I guess even pro Kilacarolo citizens of Turkey and voters kind of like this newfound influence and cachet that Bayraktar has brought to Turkey. And even they like what Bayraktar represents, a formerly imperial power that is once again respected globally, a country that has overseas bases, you know, presence in the Persian Gulf, in North Africa, South Caucasus, and has brought in allies as far as the Baltics and Central Asia, all because it is able to flaunt this technology. So unless the economy in Turkey comes down crashing and the economy has to be bailed out, I think that this new kind of found fascination with hard power in Turkey will continue to be the case even if it is a cultural presidency going forward. During his time in office, Erdogan, together with his son-in-law, working from both ends, have created a global military brand. And in a sense, it's grown bigger than Erdogan. Bayraktar drones have become a supporting pillar of Turkish foreign policy. I think this will, this company and its drones will remain as an element of Turkey's foreign policy decision-making. You know, an element where Turkey strengthens allies, builds alliances with friendly countries, 
pushes back against adversaries or by providing this uh, drone platform to the countries that it chooses to. So I think it remains as an element of Turkish foreign policy decision making, even if this is a clear victory for the opposition going forward. This episode of the New Arab Voice was written and produced by me, Hugo Goodrich. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. The New Arab Voice will be back next week. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at The New Arab Voice, for additional content. We also have a weekly newsletter which you can sign up for. Find the link in the show notes. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review which helps us spread the word. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news, analysis and opinion from the region.